Hey, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, take out your notes from your bulletin, fire up your Journey Church International app if you want to follow along that way. Welcome to those of you who are watching online. We're in week three, the final week of a series that we're calling Finding Your Way Back to God. We're spending three weeks in Colossians chapter 3, and here's our goal. We're trying in these three weeks in Colossians chapter 3 to learn how to walk towards God and to learn how to walk with God so that we don't walk away from God. We're trying to learn how to walk towards God and walk with God so we don't walk away from God. Colossians chapter 3 has kind of been our map to teach us how to do that. Now, a quick reminder about Colossians before we dig in this evening. Colossians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae started by a man named Epaphras, and it was started in his home. He said, who was Epaphras? He was just a guy. He said, what's his story? He went to a revival service in a city called Ephesus that was about 120 miles from his hometown. If you look at the map of kind of the Mediterranean rim here, you see just to the north, kind of east of Athens, Greece, the city of Ephesus. If you head right from Ephesus, you see Colossae about 120 miles. You also see Laodicea right above Colossae, 10 miles from there. You see Philadelphia about 25 miles from Laodicea, Sardis about seven miles from Philly, Thyatira about seven miles from Sardis, Pergamos, about 12 miles from Thyatira, Smyrna. You see all those cities there together. Those seven cities from uh, Ephesus to Laodicea all had a letter written to them by Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find seven letters from Jesus to those seven churches talking about what Jesus sees after the first 50 years of the church. The church had been going on about a generation, and Jesus wrote a letter to each one of those towns saying, hey, this is what I see in you. This is what's really going to have to dig in. Here's the good you're doing. Keep doing this. Here's some things that aren't going well. You're going to need to change these for the church to continue. This fall, we're going to study those seven letters in a series called Notifications, Letters from Jesus. We'll look at those seven letters to those seven churches in those seven cities. But today we're looking into Colossae. And what we see is we kind of look at this map and we look at the strategy as we see the church planning strategy of the first century Christian movement. And here's the church planning strategy of the first century Christian movement. There needed to be a church in every town. I mean, when you look at Laodicea being 10 miles from Colossae, when you look at Philadelphia being seven miles from cities on either side of it, there were cities within walking distance for Christians to go to on a Sunday morning. But the first century church planning strategy was let's put a church in every community so people will have a church where they are, where they work, where they live, where they play. Often these churches would meet in public buildings as long as possible, which is the church planning strategy that our church has adopted. It's why today I preached here at 815, and then I got in a car, and I drove over to Olathe, and I preached at our Olathe campus at 10 a.m. Then I got in a car and drove back here and did 16 parent-child baby dedications at 2 p.m. in this room, and we're back here today. Say, so why would we have more than one church in Kansas City? Because the first century church planning strategy was a church in every community, a church where people work and live and play. And if we can, a church in a public building that's already set up for us. That's why if you drive maybe more than 30 minutes to Journey Church International, and there's a bunch of you coming from that area, we'd love to consider putting a campus in your town. Maybe your town will be the next one that is our Laodicea, our Philadelphia, our Sardis, because we want to be where people are and we want to be where the community lives. That's why we're trying to do what we do. We've got a passion to be where people are. But our biggest passion is not planning campuses. It's not planning churches. It's building Christians. That's our biggest passion, building Christians. And that's what this series has been all about, trying to teach people how to walk towards God 
and walk with God so they don't walk away from God. Let's look at what we've learned so far in this series. We've learned if we're going to walk towards God and with God week one, that our awareness is going to begin to change when we walk with God. I mean, as we begin to walk with God, we're going to see Christianity different. Christianity is not just going to be Sunday anymore, one day a week. Christianity is not just going to be someday I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Christianity is going to become a person named Jesus that we have a relationship with. Christianity is going to be a place called the kingdom of God. Not that we go to when we die, but a place that comes and lives in us when we begin following Jesus. We learned last week in week two that our actions are going to begin to change when we walk with God. Not only do we see things differently spiritually, but all of a sudden we are seen differently spiritually. We begin to take off the old. We begin to put on the new in the likeness of Jesus, and we literally begin to have different actions. This week, we're going to see two key attitudes that will begin to change in our hearts when we walk with God. So we know as we walk with God, our awareness changes. We see things deeper. We know when we walk with God, our actions begin to change. People see us different. But really, one of the greatest things about walking with God is the change that happens in us. And as we get to the end of Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, as you begin walking with God, here's what happens in your heart. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17 of Colossians 3. We've been through verses 1 through 14 in the first two weeks of this series. Here's what Paul says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we started this whole series by saying this church in Colossae started by this guy who had just become a Christian that had a very, very basic understanding of Christianity. Their basic understanding of Christianity became a bad understanding of Christianity that had to be corrected. Well, Christianity is just going to church. Paul said, no, it's more than that. Well, Christianity is just going to heaven when you die. Paul said, no, it's more than that. Well, Christianity is just adding Jesus to who you already are. Paul said, no, it's it's different than that. And we know if you don't have a deeper understanding of Christianity, you might drift. So we're trying to figure out what it looks like to walk with God. We're asking some questions that Paul asked. We asked this question the first week. We said, if every Christian in our city this week lived on earth the same way they would live in heaven, would our city be better? If every marriage this week treated each other on earth like they would treat each other in heaven, spouses, would marriages be better? If every parent this week parented on earth like they would parent in heaven, for those of you who run companies or manage employees, if everyone who worked for you worked this week on earth the way they'd live in heaven, would your, the way they'd work in heaven, would your job be easier? We all said, yes, life in heaven is probably better than life on earth. So week two, we said, how's it happen? How's that work? We can't change the whole world, but we can change us. How do we live on earth like we live in heaven? That's what we talked about last week. What we're talking about this week is not so much others as it is us. Today's key, key question is this. What's in it for me? Right? I get that if I live on earth like I'd live in heaven, it's better for our city. It's better for our marriage. It's better for my kids. But what's in it for me? Like if I live on earth like I'd live in heaven, if I really begin to walk with God, why is that so much better for me? Today's key question is what's in it for me, and Paul gives us two answers. He said two attitude changes that are going to radically impact your life. Attitude change number one, you're going to find yourself moving from anxiety to peace. Paul said if you will begin to walk with God, you're going to find in your own spirit your life moving from anxiety to 
to peace. And secondly, Paul says, if you begin to walk with God, you're going to see your life moving from entitlement to gratitude. Two key attitude changes. You're going to find yourself moving from always being anxious to having peace. You're going to find yourself moving out of being entitled to really living with a spirit of gratitude. We want to look at these two things today. Attitude change number one. What does it look like to move from anxiety to peace? Now, before we dig into this, let's revisit the first Sunday of our year this year, January 8th, 2018. We started a series called Death by Distraction, Taking Your Life Back. And we said the way we live life in America maybe isn't working for everyone. Maybe we need to call time out and rethink some things. We gave these statistics from the National Institute of Health. Here's a picture of us from those who run the National Institute of Health. Anxiety disorders are reaching epidemic proportions in America according to the National Institute of Health. Nearly 50 million Americans, or about one in seven, will be impacted this year by panic attacks, phobias, or other anxiety disorders. Number three, anxiety disorders in the United States are the number one mental health problem among women, and they're second only to alcohol and drug abuse among men. Stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity. Since 1997, last 21 years roughly, Americans have more than doubled the amount of money we spend on anti-anxiety medications, and there's been an exponential increase in depression as each new generation is three times as likely to experience depression as the previous generation. My generation is three times more likely to suffer from depression than my parents, my children's generation, your children's generation, three times more likely than us, or six times more likely than grandma and grandpa. We learned that citizens in other countries experience only one-fifth or 20% of the anxiety levels of Americans until they come to America. And when they immigrate here, their anxiety level matches the level of Americans. And psychologist Robert Leahy points out that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average adult psychiatric patient in the 1950s. If you don't believe that, ask any elementary, middle school, or high school teacher how much anxiety kids are under these days, and they'll say, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Listen, we got a problem. Like, we got a problem with the way America does life. And if you can solve that problem, like if you know how to take people from anxiety to peace, you literally could start a $300 billion company. I want you to think about it. If you could take people from anxiety to peace, you could start a $300 billion a year company. If you do it, I just ask that you tithe the journey. Since I gave you the idea... Just help a brother out, right? And we'll just keep reaching more people. But like, you, you get it. This is it's a big industry. If you could do this, you could change the world. And Paul says, I can. Paul says, I, I know how to do it. Paul says, here's how you move from anxiety to peace. Every American should be saying, how? If this is possible, how? And Paul says this in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. If you have a pen, I want you to circle three words. We're going to look at three words in this verse. I want you to circle the word let in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule. Circle the word let. Circle the word peace. Let peace. And circle the word rule. Let peace rule. Those are the three words we're going to talk about. Let peace rule. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. How do we do that? We're going to look at let last. Let's jump to peace. Peace in this context 
is not the word peace that you and I think of. When we look at the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, 39 of these books are in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. They're all written in the Hebrew language, written to the Israelite people, so they could kind of be evangelists of the Hebrew God globally. The New Testament is written in a language called Koine Greek. The word Koine means common. It was literally made up and instituted by Alexander the Great when he conquered the world. He told his generals, I want to be able to ride into any place that we rule. I want to get off my horse and I want to talk to someone face to face. I do not want interpreters. I don't trust them. So, so he made the world, almost all the educated world in kind of Western Asia speak a common language. It would be in that language that the whole world spoke that the New Testament was written. So almost the whole world could hear about Jesus at once. It was the English of its day. If you travel internationally, you're going to find when you fly to a country in the airport, you're going to find several languages, most of that country, and almost always English. There will almost always be English in any airport that you travel to across the world. That was Greek. So when we look back in scripture, we don't just look at the word we're reading. We look at the original word. In the Greek language, the word is irene, irene, E-I-R-E-N-E. That's the word for peace. And when you go back through Greek literature and you say, what does this word mean? This word is an actuality that changes an attitude. That's what irene means. It's an actuality that changes an attitude. Now, we don't use the word actuality much. You say, what is an actuality? It means it's something that's real. It's something that has happened. It's something that has actually already been accomplished. It's something that is real. But it's also something that can be felt. It's an attitude. Here's, here's how I would say that you can see the difference between the two. If I gave you like a pop quiz, do you believe that, that there is such thing as the peace of God? Yes or no? Most of you would check yes. And then I, if I said, have you ever felt it or do you feel it every day? Most of you say, mm, not always. Like I believe there's such thing as the peace of God. But I can't say that I'm living in it and I feel it all the time. But Paul says he wants us to. When we look through Greek literature, we find this word popping up two places. First, we see it in treaties between countries at peace. We see Irene treaties. Treaties between two countries that have said, I'm going to agree to live at peace with you. You're going to agree to live at peace with me. We are going to be at peace with each other. We're good. We don't have to worry about how we feel about each other. That's what peace means in this context. Two parties that have said, I'm good with you. Are you good with me? This is what is offered to people who follow Jesus. God says, I want to offer you a peace treaty. I want to offer you Irene. In Romans 5, 1, Paul says it this way. Paul says, since we have been justified through faith, you say, what does that mean? Justification is one deeper part of the work of salvation, but we could summarize it this way. Paul would say, since you're a Christian, since you've decided to follow Jesus, since you've put your faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, peace with God is not something we will have. It's not something we can have. It's something we do have. Paul said, if you are a Christian, you have peace with God. He has signed the treaty. He's at peace with you. If you're a Christian, God is at peace with you. You're good with him. And then Paul says, but do you feel good with him? You're good with him, but do you feel good with him? Peace is something you have, but Paul said God wants peace to be something that you feel. Because this word, when we find it in Greek literature, this word irene also means a feeling of rest. 
It means a feeling of security. It means a feeling of being untroubled. It actually is the Latin, it derives from the Latin word that we get the English word serene from. That's what this word peace means, serene, serenity, being at peace, being at rest, being untroubled, chilling out, just being good with everything. It's a feeling of peace that's stronger than trouble. Jesus said you'll have trouble, trouble, but this peace is going to feel stronger than the trouble. Jesus said there are going to be things that make you afraid, but this peace is going to be stronger than the fear. Jesus said I'm offering to you a peace that literally can impact what you feel, how you feel. Here's how he said it to his disciples in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And I don't give as the world gives. I don't give just a little bit at a time. I don't give and then take it back. I'm giving it to you. I'm signing the treaty. It's an actuality. We're at peace with one another. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. I see so many Christians that say, yes, I'm, I'm at peace with God, but I'm troubled. Why? I'm at peace with God, but I'm afraid. Why? I'm at peace, but I don't feel peace. Paul says as we begin to walk with God, we move from anxiety to peace, but only if we let Jesus be in charge. Let peace rule. Look at that word rule. Let the peace of God rule. Rule is the Greek word brabeo. Greek is a language like a lot of kind of the, the Middle Eastern languages that is best summarized in pictures rather than words. And the picture of the word brabeo is this. It's the activity of an umpire in an athletic contest. That's what the word rule means. It means to make the rules, keep the rules, enforce the rules, be the one who knows the rules. Rule is the picture of an umpire in an athletic contest. Now, my best, worst job ever was umpiring. And if you've ever umpired, you know what I'm talking about. It was my best, worst job ever. I umpired when I was in high school, a little bit in college, umpiring little kids' games. And it was the best job ever um, because when I, when I umped in my small town, we made $15 a game for games that usually lasted less than an hour plus any food that you wanted in the concession stand. I think they changed that rule after I was an umpire because I, 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 you know, I made my money in concession stand food. I love ballpark food and eat way too much of it. On a Memorial Day weekend or a 4th or of July holiday, you could make a couple hundred dollars umping and eat 20,000 calories worth of candy and hot dogs and popcorn. I mean, it, it, was, it was awesome. Um, and umping in the field, like just calling out and safe at the bases, umping was the best job ever. But when you got behind the plate, it was the worst job ever. And here's why. Because the way that my conscience kind of works is I have a guilty conscience. And if I do something wrong, I feel like I need to make up for it. And I would often be behind the plate, and a pitch would come in, and I'd say, ball. But in my mind, I'm thinking that was a strike, and I'd want to say, hang on, hang on, I messed that one up. It was really a strike. I couldn't do that, so I would just always change the next one. Like, I would just, I would just make up for the call. If I called a ball a strike, be like, next one's going to be a ball, don't care where it is. If I call a strike a ball, next one's going to be a ball, don't care where it is. So I wasn't a very good umpire, but, but in this league, the coaches were not allowed to argue balls and strikes, so it worked in my favor. I could never be yelled at. I just needed to make sure within like a seven-pitch segment, it always kind of worked out the way that it was supposed to work out. The last game, they let me umpire behind the plate. I was behind the plate late in the game. Um, a, a kid came up who had not got on base. He was not going to get on base. He never swung the bat. He was scared to death, you could tell. And he ran the count to three balls and one strike. For those of you who don't know baseball, if you get four balls, you get to go to first base without having to swing the bat to get on. And I knew this, and I'm thinking, finally, this kid's going to get on base. But as the kid released the pitch, it looked good. I mean, like out of his hand, it looked good. 
So I just, you know, three, one count. I knew I wasn't going to strike the kid out. You know, I, I call strike. And as I'm calling strike too fast, I look and the ball kind of rolls across the place. I was like, strike. And I was like, no, it was, you know, like I'm yelling at myself before the coaches would be if they're allowed to, but they're not. Kid looks back at me with tears in his eyes. And I'm thinking, don't worry, kid. Next pitch is a ball. Like it, like I just knew next pitch is going to be a ball. Don't worry. I didn't say it, but I said it in my head. I thought, Next pitch, he walks. So the kid rears back, throws a pitch, and again, right out of his hand as it's coming, I literally step by play, ball four, and I point to first base. And the coach comes exploding out of the dugout. What do you mean, ball four? It's coach, you're not allowed to argue balls and strikes. And he said, he swung and missed. And I said, <laughs> I said, he did? He's like, yeah. I looked at the kid, and I was like, you did? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, then you're out. I was like, you know, I was, was going to let you walk, but, but it was like, I can't do this. Like, I don't want to be an umpire behind the plate. There's too much pressure. Kids are crying. Parents are yelling. I just want the free concession stand food. Can I just stay in the field? It's the last game they let me up behind the plate because I just kind of made it up as I went sometimes. It's hard to be an umpire, but that's the word here. Peace gets to be the umpire. Peace, when we look at the spiritual fact of Colossians 3, the peace of Christ not only is the rule, it makes the rules spiritually. The peace of Christ gets to be the ump. He's the guy who, who gets to make the rules, and he knows the rules. He is the rule. You say, how does it work that peace makes the rules? It's, it's asking yourself two questions. Before you ever have a decision in life that you're unsure of, do, do I do A or do I do B? Do I go left or do I go right? Before you get into a place where you're trying to decide, how do I know what God wants me to do? I let the peace of Christ make the rules and I ask questions like these. Will this decision or action keep me on God's side of the treaty? God has offered me peace if I will live following Jesus. So does this decision keep me at peace with God? Is this the decision he would want me to make? The peace of Christ gets to now make the rules by just being the standard. It's by asking questions like this. Question number two, will this decision or action result in a deep and abiding peace that Jesus is with me? To say it another way, can Jesus stand behind me and cheer me on in this action, in this decision? If I pick up the phone and have a conversation with this person who's not my spouse, is Jesus going to say, yes, do that? Or is he going to say, no, don't do that? The peace of Christ makes the rule. If I fire up my browser and go to a page that Jesus can't say, yes, do that, the peace of Christ makes the rule. If I want to go lash out at somebody who has hurt me or one of my family members, can Jesus stand behind me cheering and say, yes, I want you to do that. The peace of Christ, having peace, being at peace with Jesus gets to make the rules. It is the rule and it gets to make the rules. And for Christians, we got to remember Jesus is always in the boat. He's always right there with us. He can always help us make our choices unless we've kicked him out of the boat or unless we haven't invited him into the boat in the first place, or unless, like the disciples, we just forget he's there. And a lot of times, as Christians, like we talked about with flat Jesus earlier in the series, we just forget that Jesus is always there. We just forget that he goes on every trip with us. He sees what we see. He hears what we hear. And he's not always cheering us on and saying, yes, that is the decision I would want you to make. So we let peace make the rules. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian and you don't have peace, 
And nearly 20 years of ministry, counseling with people, talking to people, trying to live in my own life spiritually. When you feel anxiety in certain areas of your life, I have found the areas in your life where you don't have peace are usually two things. One, they're areas where you don't believe that God is really in charge. They're areas where you think, you know what, I have to take control of this because I just don't believe God is really in charge of this area. We had a very small picture of this. On the way to our Olathe campus today, my wife drove me over there. Um, she was waiting in the car, and I preached and literally got in the car. And we headed over there, and she's, I'm going you know, to get you over there faster than anyone's ever got us there. And I thought, oh, no, that, that doesn't sound good. And I was actually closer to Jesus when I preached there than I was here because I, I drew close to him. On the road over a couple times, it was like, Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, it was like, it was not good. But, but we hit like every red light that there was to hit. And she was growing so frustrated. My daughter, Casey, who's an eighth grader, was in the back seat. And as we were getting closer to the school, we could see the flags blowing. We hit another stoplight. Danielle was like, are we going to hit every stoplight? And Casey said, Mom, I think you need to move from anxiety to peace. And I was like, amen, sister. Like, that is how you preach to your mother right there. And I looked at Danielle and I said, listen, I said, this is, this is the smallest, smallest, smallest unimportant fact of what I said today. But if you really believed God was in control of when we got there, who cares how many red lights we get? Like, right. I mean, this is a picture. It's a small, unimportant picture. But if we really believe God is in charge of what time we show up, who cares if the light is red? Now magnify that in all the other areas of your life where you're feeling anxiety. Do you really believe God's in control of those things? Or have you forgotten that ultimately it's in his hands and you can trust him. See, areas in your life where you don't have peace are areas where you don't really believe God is in charge. Or number two, they're areas that you've not allowed God to have control of. You've told God, I want to give you Sunday. I want to give you someday. Don't touch my money. I want to I give you a mission trip. Don't tell me how to handle that relationship. I want to give you this, God, but this person in my life that's unhealthy for me, I'm not going to give you. Is there something you've kind of told God you can have a lot of me, but not all of me? Because you're going to live in anxiety in those areas. And when anxiety triggers, when the anxiety alarms start going off, you need to pull back and say, wait a minute, as a Christian, Jesus is with me. I have peace. Why don't I feel peace? I really believe God is in charge here. Have I, have I given control of this to God or am I doing things that I shouldn't be doing and I've kind of left God behind? Let peace rule. First one of those words is let. Say, Christian, how do I do that? If I have an area where I struggle to believe God's really in charge, how do I just trust him? If I have an area that I haven't given God control of, how do I, how do, I do that? Let peace rule. The quickest way to move from anxiety to peace I have found out is really just to let go and let God. It's a phrase I heard really, really early in my church life. Let go and let God. But it's a healthy practice. If you can ask yourself those two questions, if I do this, am I going to be at peace with God? Yes. If I do this, can Jesus stand cheering me on? Yes. Then after those two things, I have no more control. So I'm just going to let go and I'm going to trust God. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I know I'm at peace with God. I know Jesus would cheer me on. So I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm just going to let go of it and I'm going to trust God. I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to let God be in control. And I'm going to have peace with whatever the outcome is. See, I believe if we will allow God to rule our hearts, we can move from anxiety to peace. But that's just one attitude change. The second attitude change is moving from entitlement to gratitude. 
moving from entitlement to gratitude. Let's look at these three verses one more time. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule. Let peace rule in your heart. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I grew up in a generation of church that was kind of going through worship wars. You say, what do you, what do you mean worship wars? If you ever grew up in a church where on one Sunday you were singing in hymnals and the next Sunday you were singing off a wall, you grew up in the tension of worship wars. If you ever went to a church that had a traditional service one hour and a contemporary service another hour, you're, you were at a church that was still in the midst of a worship war. You can clearly see what side of the line we've fallen on. It's not, there's not one that's right, one that's wrong, but there was a little tension. And I knew our church had changed forever. I went to a little church most of my life that had less than 100 people. With 2,000 people in the little town I grew up in, um, in southern Ohio, had less than 100 kids in my graduating class. Everyone knew everyone in my town. What about 100 people in the church that I went to total? One service, 100 people, probably 30% of them kids. And we would have like a five to seven minute greeting time every Sunday where like everyone would walk around and talk to everyone. You literally would see most of the people in the town at that time during the service. And every Sunday we would sing a song called the family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And we would walk around like, hi brother, hi sister. You know, it's like, hey, hey Bonnie, hi, hey Ted, how you doing? You know, how's, how's Johnny? Like you were one big family. If you were an outsider and you watch people walking around singing about being the family of God, it probably looked and sounded a little cultic. I, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it's like, that's, you know, that's odd, brother, sister, how's, how you doing? Well, one Sunday, the song changed, right? We went to go see Tom and Betty and every, you know, everyone who was at the church. And instead of an organ and a piano and the family of God, all of a sudden we had drums and guitars. And as we turned to greet, the song was different. And the guy was singing, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. And then he sang that every Sunday, I think, until the guy died. Like it was just like we changed the song, the, the walk around song. We changed it. And that's all I knew of that song is that I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will enter his gates. I didn't know it was a Bible verse. I didn't know it was a command. I had no idea it was a spiritual posture. But that song, spiritually, has some really important truth. Because Psalm 100 verse 4 says this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. So what's it talking about? It's talking about how the Jewish people would go to the temple. What was it? The temple, the presence of God. This is talking about how to approach God, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. What we're learning from the Bible is that the proper way to approach God is with gratitude. The proper way to approach God is with gratitude. And without gratitude, we not only walk away from God, without gratitude, it's hard to approach God at all. We've, been, we've spent three weeks in Colossians chapter 3 to learn how to walk towards God and to walk with God so we don't walk away from God. But if we can't learn gratitude, according to Psalm 104, we can't even get inside the church building to walk towards God. And what we find is that Satan's response to gratitude, where he tries to get us off track so we won't walk towards God in the first place, Satan's response to gratitude is entitlement. And it comes in a phrase of three little words. He whispers in our ear, God's not fair. Right? He whispers in our ears, that's not fair. And if Satan can get us to believe, as we look around life, if Satan can get us to believe, that's not fair. That's not right. 
I can't believe God's doing that to you. If Satan can get us to believe God's not fair, if he can make sure we can't have gratitude for our life, he can keep us from ever approaching God. He did it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? That's not fair. And he does it with us. You know how I see it happen most in my generation? I'm 40. Social media. I watch people scroll through their Facebooks. I watch them scroll through their social media. I listen to people's conversations talking about everyone else but them. And they have this attitude as they kind of look at the lives of everyone else. They think, that's not fair. And that's not fair that they're getting to experience that and I'm here. It's not fair that their kid won another award and mine didn't. It's not fair that they seem to always be on vacation. And, and it's like Satan is using social media. Like I think Satan's using social media way more than the Russians, right? Like if anyone's trying to mess with people's minds through social media, right? It's, it's the devil, not Vladimir Putin. Because he's putting in people's heads this thought of removing gratitude. Because if I can take gratitude... I can make sure you never want to go to God. The reality is this. We struggle to pray the simplest prayers when entitlement lives in our heart. I mean, it's a genius move by the devil. We struggle to pray the simplest prayers when entitlement lives in our heart. When these words, that's not fair, live in our psyche. The simplest prayer I ever learned, the first prayer I ever learned was this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for the... Food. Yeah, it doesn't rhyme with good. I know they both end with O-O-D. You know, it was creative to help us remember something. God is great. God is good. Let us sing for the food. Amen. You can't even pray that prayer with the whisper of Satan in your ear. I mean, think about that prayer. God is great. God is good. And God's not fair. Those things can't all be true. If God's not fair, then God's not great. If God's not fair, God's not even good. And if God's not fair, why should I even thank him for the food? Right? If God's not fair, then God's not great. And if God's not fair, then God's not even being good to me. And why should I thank him about anything in my life? See, if Satan can get us to live in entitlement, that's not fair. He can keep us from approaching God in even the simplest ways. But Paul said, if we can learn to have gratitude, he said we're actually released in the most sincere expression of our faith when gratitude does live in our hearts and it finally gets released. Entitlement keeps us from coming to God at all. Gratitude actually helps us come closer to God than anything that we could have ever imagined. You say, what does gratitude look like? Paul says it's expressed in two ways. Number one, it's expressed in how we worship. And I want you to think about this. I want to challenge you, not in your style of worship, but in your spirit of worship. I want to challenge you on this point. Paul says spiritual gratitude is expressed through worship. Look at verse 16. Real quick, we're almost done. Paul says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, through hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Your outer expression of worship is a picture of your inner possession of who Jesus is. Your outer expression of worship, Paul said, the way you sing, the way you express your gratitude, the way you worship is a picture of your inner possession of Jesus. And Paul says, if the message of Christ dwells in you richly, like if there is a deep, rich impact of who Jesus is in your soul, you'll show that when you worship. You say, well, what does worship look like? Again, I don't want to talk about styles. Let's just talk about spirit. Because worship comes out when a deep inward desire is met. Worship comes out. You say, what's that look like? 
the most exciting sporting event I've ever been to in my life was the 2014 wild card baseball game between the Kansas City Royals and the Oakland Athletics. I never thought anything would top it, but game one of the 2015 World Series was close. When Alcides Escobar started off that game by hitting kind of a lazy fly ball to left center field, and Yohannes Cespedes kind of kicked it all the way across the outfield like he was playing kickball, and he had an inside-the-park home run on the first at-bat of the World Series. I'd never seen a stadium explode like the stadium exploded that day until the bottom of the ninth when Alex Gordon stepped up, trailing by one with their closer on the mound, and he went yard to the deepest part of the park. I was sitting with eight of my friends, um, kind of down the first baseline, lower level, and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. You say, what, what was that a picture of? Worship. What was happening in that moment in that stadium was worship. You say, what do you mean? A deep, 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 30-year-old for some, inward desire had been awakened and people showed it. There wasn't anyone dressed in royal blue who, who was doing this. Boy, he really, he really got, he really hit that one hard. That was, <laughs> he got into that one. That was good. I didn't see anyone doing that. Now I couldn't see everyone in the stadium, but there was only one section of people who looked like this, the Mets fans, right? Like there, there was a little corner of orange in the stadium and they were all like this. When it comes to worship, don't be Mets fans. Right? Like, like when, 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 when God shows up in this place, if who Jesus is inside of you and what Jesus has done for you deep inside of you is important, like Kendrick said in that song, when God walks in the room, things change. Don't be a Met fan. Don't think, hey, hey God's here. That's great. Because standing from where I sit sometimes, it's like you wonder, what, what does their inner possession of Jesus look like? Because I don't see any outer expression of Jesus in their life. You say, what does it look like? What would it look if one of your deepest inward desires was touched upon? When your NASCAR driver wins, when your team wins the Super Bowl, when, when your singer wins on American Idol or The Voice, what's it look like? That's what worship is. There's some kind of outer expression that matches the inward desire. Paul says gratitude is expressed through worship. And you can see by the outward expression how deep it, it, it was and is in the heart. But he also said, number two, it's expressed in how we work. And maybe we work more than we worship. I know that I do, probably you do too. So Paul gives us two little verses. Pretty simple, pretty powerful. He says in verse 17, we read this one already a couple times, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, just do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But then six verses later, he doubles down and he says in verse 23, and whatever you do, just work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not human masters. Paul says gratitude can change how you view things. Listen, you might say, I hate my actual job, but you can say, I'm so grateful for the ability to work. You might say, I don't even, I don't like what I do every day. I don't even like the people I work with, but I'm so grateful to be able to make a living so that I can pay the bills and just keep moving forward one day at a time. You might say, I hate waking up every day when my alarm clock goes off. But if you walk through the ICU units of the hospitals in our city, you'll say, you know what? I hate waking up every day when I have to wake up, but I'm glad to be able to put my feet on the floor and leave under my own power because there's thousands in our city who can't. See, gratitude can change 
things. If you just look for how can I be grateful in this rather than entitled? How can I make this look like I'm serving the Lord? A couple weeks ago, I was watching my son Christian play baseball. And I sent a text to my dad just to kind of get him riled up. My dad played college baseball. He's a college baseball coach for a little bit. And my dad is old school. He's, he's old school, old school baseball. My dad's favorite thing in the world is to watch the College World Series and to listen to the aluminum bats ting and to watch how fast guys run on and off the field. My dad is old school baseball. My dad taught me how to play old school baseball. And old school baseball is you run on the field, you run off the field like there's an emergency, like you just hustle. I would describe what I see at the College World Series as passion, grit, hustle. Not a lot of that that exists in today's youth sports world. So I text my dad. My, you know, my, my son's playing, and his team's kind of jog on, jog off. So I text him, and I said, you would die if you could see your grandson jogging on and off the field during his baseball game. Like, it would drive you crazy. He texted back. I knew I'd raise his blood pressure like that. So remember, I texted you would die if you could see your grandson. He texts me back, tell your son. He didn't even claim him at that point. He's like, tell, no, 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 you tell your son. He said, tell your son, Colossians 3.17, that whatever he does, he's supposed to do it like he does it for the Lord and remind him that he has my name and we do it different. That's what he texted me. You tell your son, Colossians 3.17, as we do everything like we do it for the Lord and remind him he has my name and we do it different. You know what Colossians 3 has taught us the last three weeks? Simply this. You have Jesus' name. And he does it different. You have Jesus' name. And he does it different. He doesn't do it like the rest of the world. He doesn't do it like the rest of the church world. He doesn't do it like every other Christian. You have Jesus' name. And Jesus does it different. He loves deeper. He forgives more deeply. He worships more passionately. He lives as if every moment was lived for God. So Paul said, remind them, they have Jesus' name, and Jesus did it different. A basic view of Christianity had become a bad view of Christianity, but Paul corrected it. It's not just going to church. It's not just going to heaven. It's actually connecting to Jesus and living on earth like you'd live in heaven. Got to take some old things off. Got to put some new things on. But if you'll do that, it won't just be better for the world, it'll be better for you. You'll move from anxiety to peace. You'll move from entitlement to gratitude. And the world will see Jesus in you, and maybe you'll see a little bit of heaven on earth. If you're saying, man, Christian, that's what I want, I want to give you a test drive this week. I want to ask you to test drive peace through, through gratitude, through worship this week. At a, lot of, at a lot of our series, as we wrap up our series, you know, I, I can't change your life for the rest of your life, but I try to give you like little things that have helped me. And I just try to say, hey, try to do this for a week and see if it works for you like it works for me. So I give these little challenges. So here's a challenge I want to leave you with as we close this evening. I want to give you a seven-day worship challenge. And I want you to practice peace through gratitude, through worship. So how's it going to work? Two things. Number one, I want you to use your drive time this week or a quiet time in your life to listen to worship music every day this week for a period of at least 15 minutes daily if you can. So where am I going to find worship music? If you haven't already, you can download our Journey Church International app. When you go on the home screen, I think the fifth thing up on the main menu is worship music. If you'll click it, it will take you to a Spotify account that has dozens and dozens. I think more than 50 of the songs we sing here at church. You can hit shuffle, and it'll play worship music for you. You don't have to find it. If you don't like that, just go Google worship music and you'll be able to find something online. But I want to challenge you. Now, this won't change your life. This is just listening. But if you do the next part, you can practice 
peace through gratitude through worship. Here's what I want you to do. Number two, try to identify every day one line in any song that's true of your life and that you're grateful for and just stop to express to God outwardly what you've come to believe inwardly. Like listen to the words and when any are true of you, stop and think, that's me. Just stop to out loud say, that's me. If you ever watch me worship, when I worship, it's only about me and God and what he's done in my life. I, you know, I don't worship the band. I don't worship the singers. I don't worship how good the music is, how loud it is, how soft it is, what it sounds like. I'm into the language of the song. And when I hear that God's love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me, if you ever see me raising my hands, all I'm doing is acknowledging that's me. So when we sing, God's love never fails, it never gives, it never runs out on me. It's like, yep, that's me. That's me. God, thank you. When, we walk, when, when God walks into the room, everything changes. Like, yep, that's me. God, thanks. If you, if you would ever see me leave my hands up for a whole song, it means the whole thing is deeply true in my life. All I am is like a kid answering a question in class. Yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Yep, God, that one's true of me too. Thank you so much. I'm trying to practice peace through gratitude, through worship. I'm just trying to connect with the truth that I'm grateful for. Because Paul said that's how worship gets unlocked in your life. And it allows us to move from anxiety to peace and entitlement to gratitude. It's my hope as we leave this little three-week series that it's deeply impacted your life from flat Jesus to the Jesus jacket to just maybe learning how to worship a little bit. It's my goal that you will walk with Jesus in a way that deeply changes you forever. Would you pray with me?